0: Once you understand something, you uh, eventually become more confident in it, don't you? You think about this as kind of a principle for our lives. Maybe a good example of this is, um, you know, once Mac had its kind of return to influence in our culture, how many of you left your PCs and went back to Mac? How many of you? Not many. This is a PC church. Good for you. We have this debate uh, in our office where we have Adam and Jason on the Mac side and the rest of us on the right side, and we argue about this all the time. But anyway, one of the things that that I've learned about the Mac world, a lot of people will say, once you go over into that space, there's kind of like a, a learning curve, right? A steep learning curve is trying to understand how to use this new system, but then once you understand it more fully, it's bliss. It's beautiful, But just like the show of hands, the very few that rose, the reason why many of us stay in PC is because we understand it. We don't want to learn something new. We're very comfortable with where we are. So the principle does ring true that the more you understand something, the more confident within it you become. And that principle is also true of our conversion. In the way that we walk with Jesus, what we refer to as discipleship. As we grow in our faith and our love and our service of the Lord, here's what happens. I love seeing this as a pastor. I've been a pastor for less than 10 years. But when I see someone come to know Jesus, and then from there, here's what happens. They begin to pray more regularly and with greater fervor. And as they grow in their faith, they're inspired to share their faith with their unbelieving friends and family members and co-workers and neighbors. They give more generously. They live out their faith in more full and robust ways as they begin to understand their faith more deeply. And this principle is going to work itself out this morning when we look at our text, which is Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, go there with me. Find Romans chapter 8. And you'll know that as we've been walking through this series, Romans chapter 7 and the first half of Romans chapter 8 have guided us through the conversion story. How we were all dead to sin, and now how we have new life in Jesus Christ. And we saw that juxtaposition last week when Pastor Adam led us through two verses. Verses 16 to 17, you saw this stark shift. Verse 16 outlined for us in beautiful imagery that our death sentencing became our adoption hearing. So here you have God the Father, and he is in the garb of a righteous judge. He takes off the garb, he heads down to your defendant stand, and he writes the adoption papers, writing, Justin Carruthers, Son of the Most High God. And now I'm in. I'm an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ Jesus, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. We are now adopted into his family. And then verse 17, we are faced with the problem of human suffering. So if you have your Bibles, look at Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Here's what it says, just as kind of a reminder. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if, if, that's a conjunction, circle, highlight, underline, if, indeed we share in his, what's the word? What's the word? Suffering. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. If indeed we share in his sufferings. Now here's what, what I love about uh, the book of Romans, chapter 8. This chapter is perhaps the, the quintessential chapter of every single chapter in our Bibles where we kind of have these quotable quotes, these Jesus coffee mug quotes that we love to include on our t-shirts and our blankets, our coffee mugs, the back of our cars. We put them up on our wall. But then there's other parts right there in exactly the same place that we give absolutely no regard for. And I think verse 17 is perfect. How many times have you heard this? Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We've heard that all the time. But there's a conjunction built right in if indeed we share in his sufferings. And as you are going to see as we move forward this morning... There's a number of quotable quotes and tweetable tweets, a number of verses that we absolutely love to include in our house and on our Jesus memorabilia. But the context is incredibly, incredibly difficult. So just to kind of give us the, the, the recap of where we've come from, we know that our adoption was planned in advance It was given to us by the will of the Father and not on account of our own good deeds. We know that it gave us a new identity. It has removed all of our debts and we now have a new inheritance as we walk with Jesus. And what Paul wants to do for us this morning is he wants to give us the instructions manual, if you will. He wants to give us the training guide so that we understand... What is going to happen on account of walking with Jesus? On account of the Christian life? He wants to tell us, don't be surprised, dear Christian, when you encounter suffering. Don't be surprised when you encounter suffering. So here's the question that that I think many of us asks when it comes to suffering. I put it this way in your note sheet. The question we all ask is, if God is all good and all powerful... Why does he allow evil and suffering? This is a very common question in the Christian church. In fact, Barna Research, they went to a number of Christians, thousands of Christians, and they said, if you could ask God one question, what would that question be? And one out of five all said the same thing. If I had an opportunity to ask God a question, I would ask him, why do you allow evil and suffering to occur? So it's something we're all thinking about, something that we're all asking And the Apostle Paul wants to make sure that you are prepared for it. You understand why it's happening, and you have an eternal perspective in mind. You have the hope and glory that undergirds everything that you're experiencing in your life right now. That's what he wants to do for you. So you you might say, Justin, I, I understand this conceptually, but how does this work out in my life when it feels like all hell is breaking loose? In the midst of a recent cancer diagnosis. In the midst of a big move that I'm worried about. In the, in the midst of a struggling marriage. In the midst of uh, children that are rebellious. In, in the midst of the loss of a loved one. What do I do then? And so Paul wants to make sure that you're prepared. He wants to make sure that you know and understand what is going to happen on account of walking with Jesus so with all of that in mind look at Romans chapter 8 verse 28 here's what it says and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose now there's another verse we hear all the time in all things God works for the good how many times have you heard that right we put it everywhere We hear it all the time, and yet if I can just share a quick note with you, maybe uh, in in your own life you've experienced heartache and pain and frustration or the loss of a loved one, and you have a very uh, well-meaning Christian who comes alongside you and they say, well, remember Romans 8, chapter 8, that in all things God works out the good for those who love him. And in that moment, you don't really want to hear it, do you? You don't want someone to kind of give the silver lining within every gray gray cloud type of speech. You don't want to hear it. And in that moment when you are suffering, when you are down in the pit and someone says, well, God's going to work out all things for your good, maybe you might be tempted to just punch them in the face and say, I'm just going to trust that's for your good. You know, that's kind of the feeling that we have in our gut. It's like, don't silver lining my pain. Don't do that. And yet we also know it's true that both in our joyous moments and in our suffering and everything in between, God is going to be working out his glory and our good so that we can grow in Christ's likeness. And so that's what we see in the very next verse. So verse 28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. Why? To be conformed to the image of the Son. I have that verse underlined in my Bible. To be conformed to the image of the Son. So you can ask yourself this question. What is the good, spiritually speaking, in our life? The good is for you to look and act more like Jesus. The good is discipleship. And if I had more time, I would want to just camp in verse 29 and verse 30 for the next like 10 weeks, because there's so much here. But very briefly, here's what I want you to understand for the sake of what we're looking at today. This concept of predestination, what does that mean to be predestined? Well, it means before the dawn of time, God put his hand on you, and he called you to himself. Now, that's really difficult for us to accept because we want to believe that we have a part to play in our salvation enterprise. We want to to believe that even if all of us were lined up in a row, I had the, the intellect, the gifts, the skills, the wisdom to accept God's precious and perfect gift. And yet what we read in Scripture, elsewhere in Scripture, we find that God is both the author and the perfecter, even of your faith. That all of this is a credit to God and not to me. And so then we might ask ourselves, well, if God chooses some, then, then why doesn't he choose others? And that's a valid question. But it's not what Paul is intending to do in this verse. Because remember, what we're looking at here is a field guide. What we're looking at here is an instruction manual. Paul wants you to understand that God is the one who has drawn you to himself for a purpose. And what is that purpose? To be conformed to the image of the Son. Well, what does that accomplish? It brings about God's kingdom in the world, and it allows other people to witness the power of God in your life. See, the purpose of predestination, uh, one way of thinking about this, is evangelism. And the thing that always grieves me when when I hear kind of the two different, so you have the Anabaptists on one side who say it's all about believers making a choice and you got the reform folks on the other side and they say, well, it's all about predestination and and God chooses some and doesn't choose others. I want to shake both of them and say you're both wrong. Because what Paul is saying here is that God calls some to himself for the purpose of bringing about his kingdom experience in the world so that others might come to know him. So we're theologizing this question when Paul is saying, look at my life. Look at what I was doing. I was on the road to Damascus, and I was going to persecute the church. A blinding light comes down, and God says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I say, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And just like that, I become a follower of Jesus. God chose me. I did not choose him. But in so doing, he gave me a purpose, a calling upon my life to go and to bear fruit, fruit that will last. He wanted me to become an evangelist, not to argue with each other about who's in and who's out. And so my hope for you today as well, whether you find yourself more in the Anabaptist tradition, it's all about believers making a choice, or in the Reformed tradition, it's all about God choosing some and not choosing others, My encouragement to you is to consider the purpose of why he's saying this. The very reason why Paul is saying some are predestined is so that you will be conformed to the image of the Son and so that you will bring about God's kingdom in the world so others might know him. That's what humbles Paul as he writes this. He says, So that you might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You might be the firstborn. I've chosen you first so that others might be brought in. Do you see that? So that's what we have to keep in mind when it comes to the concept of predestination. So back to the question, what is the good? The good is for us to be conformed into the image of the Son, for us to look and act more like Jesus. And God will use joyful circumstances, and God will... I use sorrowful circumstances and suffering and pain, all of those things, in order for us to grow in Christlikeness. All those experiences. I think of the image that the psalmist gives us of God being a potter and us being the clay. And at times, God will use water on that clay and he will very delicately and softly smooth out those lumps and it's going to feel nice, it's going to be comforting. And at other times, he's going to put the water away, and he's going to bring out the sandpaper. And it's going to be incredibly powerful, but it's going to be incredibly painful as well. But both of them are used for the same purpose, to conform you to the image of the sun. So to help steady us in the midst of life's circumstances, for the rest of our time, I want to give you some of the hard truths of suffering. Some of the the things that we ought to expect. The first one is this. Number one, God will give you more than you can handle. Do you see that little underline there? There is no underline. God will give you more than you can handle. Now, we know what we hear all the time, right? God will never give you more than you can handle. We hear that all the time. My question I need to ask you is, who says? Where in the Bible does it say that? Give me a a scripture verse, a scripture passage where, where God communicates that God will never give you more than you can handle. In fact, throughout scripture, all I see is the opposite. So in that fill in the blank, you can write the word absolutely. God will absolutely give you more than you can handle. Or most certainly, or you can just scratch it all out. Because God will give you more than you can handle. Let me give you an example of this. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Here's an example of someone enduring far more, far more than what he can handle. But, he says, this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God Who raises the dead. And so Paul says, Let me tell you something. That that little slogan you hear all the time God will never give you more than you can handle. Leave it behind, throw it away. God will absolutely give you more than you can handle. But this is the promise that he makes he will never leave you or forsake you. He will enter into the valley with you in the midst of your suffering. And if we are faithful to suffer well, he will use those experiences to help us grow and be conformed in the image of Christ Jesus. That's the promise of God. And tied to that, here's the second one. Jesus suffered death so that you and your suffering could become more like him. Jesus suffered death so that you and your suffering could be more like him. Now, when you, when you really think about this, I think there's two things that you, you ought to consider. The first is an encouragement. The first is this. We realize that because of the sacrifice of Jesus, now everything that we experience in this life, both our joys and our suffering, has a purpose. There's a purpose to it. That God is redeeming all things in his time. We might not even have the eyes to see it, especially when it comes to gratuitous evil and suffering. We, can, we ask ourselves, how could this possibly be a part of God's plan? But we see in the scope of eternity, at the end times when we are in glory with God, he will work backwards to redeem all things to himself so that even in your suffering, they will all be turned into memorials of God's grace. And if we have the eyes to see that, what an encouragement it is in the midst of our suffering. But here's the second thing. For our unchurched and unbelieving friends and family members and co-workers and neighbors, it absolutely means that they suffer in vain. It's pointless. Because they'll endure suffering. They'll suffer and then one day they'll even and die. And what's it for? Nothing. Nothing. And so in one sense, we're encouraged because we have the finally have the eyes to see that God is doing something even in the midst of our hard times. But it should also compel us to love those who are far from God because when we see their suffering, we say at least up to this point where they haven't encountered Jesus, their suffering is useless. It is futile and it's all in vain. And practically speaking, here's how how we might be tempted to misconstrue this. When when we hear that Jesus is bringing about our good, we might see that if your business goes belly up, we start thinking to ourselves, well, maybe there's an even better business around the corner. Or if you have a a recent cancer diagnosis, you think to yourself, well, you know what? If I just pray fervently and I'm faithful to suffer well, then he's going to take the cancer away. And then I'm going to have a clean bill of health that's going to be even better than it once was. Right? So we we play these games with God. And I say, maybe not. Maybe not. The only promise that Scripture communicates to us is this. I put it up on the screen. If you lose your job or if you lose your health or if you lose your family, fill in the blank. And you are faithful to suffer well, God will use that circumstance to help you conform to the image of the Son. That's the promise. That's what Paul is saying. And so my concern for you is that sometimes we say things the Bible doesn't say. And then we begin to put our hope in those things. And then when that hope is full grown and life doesn't turn out the way that we thought, we start to lose faith in a faithful God on the basis of something he never said. Something he never told you. But we say, God... We kind of had this agreement that if I followed you, everything would go well in my life. And now I have cancer. Now I lost my job. Now my marriage is on the rocks. I didn't sign up for this. And God says, have you read Romans 8? The promise that I made to you is that you will indeed suffer many things. But I will use all of them, joy and suffering to help you conform to the likeness of my son. This is why Paul says earlier in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, he says, therefore, we also rejoice in our sufferings. Why would you do that? Why would you rejoice in your sufferings? Because suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint. Because we know how this story ends. In the scope of glory, we know that all things will be redeemed in due time. And that's what should excite us. So here's the third, right on the heels of that. God doesn't author suffering, but he refuses to waste it. God does not author suffering, but he refuses to waste it. Is God the author of evil? Absolutely not. Is God the author of suffering? Absolutely not. Here's what we read in scripture. Genesis chapter 1, after God finished his creation, he said everything was very good. James chapter 1, scripture says God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. 1 John chapter 1, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So we know without a doubt that God does not author suffering, he does not author, author evil, and he is always the first to mourn the devastating effects of sin and how it impacts his creation that he has made and the crown of his creation, which is you. When you weep and mourn on account of suffering... God weeps with you. He's always the first to mourn because it's not the way things are supposed to be. And that's what we see as we keep reading. Look at verse 30 to 32. And those he predestined, he also called. We talked about this already. He has called you for a purpose, not just to determine who's in or out, but to be evangelist. Those he predestined he also called, and those he called, he also justified. That's a churchy word to say you have been declared righteous. You've been declared perfectly obedient because of Christ's sacrifice. And those he justified, he also glorified. And do you know what I love about this? What tense are all these verbs in? They're all in past tense. What could that possibly mean? It means that your judgment day is already behind you. It means your judgment day is already in the past. That you are already, if you are in Jesus, you are secure in the palm of God's hand and nothing can take you out of that. You are already glorified and justified. What incredible good news. Verse 31, what then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? There's another quotable quote right there. We use it all the time, but it's all in the context of suffering all of it. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So you might be thinking at this point, alright, so now the suffering part is done. Graci- God is going to graciously give us all things. But, but here's what I would say to you. Do you know what's included in all things? Suffering. Suffering. Suffering's included in that. God is going to graciously give you all things. So, here's a question for you that that I think might be a little bit hard to accept, but consider it for a moment. Is there a sense in which suffering, spiritually speaking, could be a gift? Is there a sense in which suffering that God allows us to endure could be a spiritual gift? Yikes. Is it possible that good circumstances like, like fame and fortune and affluence and wealth and health and wealth and happiness and all those things could lead you to become weak, selfish, bored, narcissistic, inattentive to the needs of God the Father and to those around you? And conversely, if that's true, is it possible that that bad circumstances like pain and weakness and suffering and even injustice could lead you to further meekness and humility and graciousness and the fruit of the Spirit? Like love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Is it possible that these terrible afflictions that we face in our own life could be good for us? And the way I put it in your note sheet is this, spiritually speaking, good circumstances can be terrible for you, and terrible circumstances can be good for you. I, maybe the, the best macro example of this is uh, Christian trends across, across the world. Do you know where Christianity is growing right now? Like wildfire, China, India, Pakistan, Iran, Iraq, and most of Africa. That's where Christianity is just exploding. Do you know where Christianity is on a steep decline? Canada, the United States, Great Britain, most of Europe. So in in these communities, in these nations in which there's a high degree of freedom and affluence to be what you want to be and and to worship freely, and where there's a, a higher degree of financial success, all these things become the recipe for apathy and disinterest in the gospel. And all these places where people are being persecuted on account of their faith, and even to do something like we're doing right now, just just sitting here, worshiping, hearing the preaching of God's word, they would be persecuted or possibly even be put to death, and Christianity is exploding like wildfire. So I say to you again, is there a sense in which good things could be bad for us and bad things could be terrible for us? I think so. And Paul says it himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, to keep me from being conceited. I love that. A thorn was given to me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me. Again, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I recognize now that God is the one who put the thorn in my flesh so that I would always be on my knees. And I would see him for who he truly is, the Lord of life. And I would see myself for what I truly am, insufficient in every way. And so God, I rejoice in my sufferings because it's in my sufferings that I have seen that it has become the crucible of my growth. I am a more devoted follower of Jesus. My eyes have never been more opened because of my suffering, because of the things that I've had to experience. And so here's the fifth note in your note sheet. His ways are not my ways. I love what Isaiah 55 says. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways are my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And if we were just to believe one thing today, I think this right here would bring a whole lot of clarity to the question of suffering. A whole lot of clarity on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, we often view God as an infinitely powerful version of ourselves. More specifically, of me. And you for you. Right? It's just so amazing to me how when I think in my mind of of all the things that I detest, all the things that I hate and I really get bent out of shape for, I begin to think those are the things that God hates too. And the things that I'm not very gifted in, you know, those gray areas, those kind of green sins, the things that I might struggle with a little bit. Man, God is so gracious in those areas. God's like, Justin, don't you worry. Those are lowercase sins. At least you're not doing the uppercase ones that you hate. I despise those too. We all have this idea in our mind that God's just us in infinite form. God says don't you see? We're all narcissists. We're all self-indulgent and we can't have the eyes to see what God may be doing in our midst to help us conform into the image and likeness of his son. Number six, you and God have a different definition of what ultimate is. (laughs) See, your and my version of how life should go is oftentimes so narrow in scope. We might think to ourselves, you know, the definition of a great life would be if my family is doing really well. Everyone's healthy. We have money in the bank account. We have a really nice home, a roof over our heads, some amenities, right? All these things are going well in our life right now. That is the textbook definition of a good life. And Paul says, that's so narrow in scope. Don't you realize that in the scope of eternity, your earthly life is a mist? It's a mist. Here today, gone tomorrow and so we need to have an eternal perspective rather than one that fixates on this life and everything that's happening in the right here and the right now that's why paul can say this in philippians chapter one for me to live is christ Was he <laughs> i'm going to have to suffer like christ and to die and to die he says is gain what If I'm going to go living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ because this is better by far. Do you see the eternal perspective that he has? He says it is far greater to be taken up into glory with God. But if there's fruitful labor for me to do here on this earth, to bring about God's kingdom in the world, to communicate God's principles to those who are lost, I want to do that. I'm willing, God. Just so you know, beam me up at any time. But I'm willing to stay. And I think our perspective is often the opposite. We are fixated on the here and now. We are so focused on this life, on our own health, wealth, and happiness. The, the, The circumstances of our earthly life, we spend so much time focusing on and fixating on and so here's what I hope you hear I hope you understand this dual reality that number one when you suffer, God suffers with you, he does not delight in your suffering, he does not want to bring about suffering in your life just for the sake of doing it but he is far more interested in your eternity maybe the best example that I can give of this is uh, when I was I was probably six or seven and I was on a 21 speed adult bike and for whatever reason I don't know why uh, it was on a, a highway road one of those like backstreet highways so there's still a lot of traffic everyone's going 100 kilometers an hour on it but it's not as busy as some of the highways we might think of and I just got a bunch of tunies when they just came out and these things were spectacular so I had like six tunies in my hand and I had that hand on one handlebar and I had the other hand on this handlebar, but the brakes were only on the right side. And I start slowly coasting down this hill right next to the highway. Meanwhile, my mom is eight months pregnant, and she's kind of like waddling around at that point, and she sees that I'm going down this hill, and I'm not hitting the brakes. So she starts screaming at me, Justin, hit the brakes, hit the brakes. I say, I can't. I have toonies in my hand. She's like... Drop the toonies! I'm unwilling to drop the tunies. So she starts sprinting at me, and as I look back, all I can see is her trying to do this. She missed. But you know what she was trying to do? She was trying to wipe me out. That's what she was trying to do. She knew the circumstances, right? She was willing for me to scrape my knees and my elbows and to fall down and to cry, maybe hit my head, whatever it takes so that I don't get hit by a bus. She's willing for me to scrape my knees so that I don't get hit by a bus. And in the same way, is it possible, dear Christian, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, is it possible that you don't have the eyes to see that spiritually uh, spiritually speaking, God is having a scraped knee moment in your life for the sake of something greater? And we just don't have the eyes to see it. We look at God and we say, why? Why would you allow the suffering to occur in my life? How could this possibly be part of your plan? And God says, oh, Justin, I just wish you could have my eyes for a moment. I wish you could see what I am doing in the midst of your pain. In that way, you would understand if you had an eternal perspective. And here's the seventh and final point. I am not a qualified judge of good or fair. I'm not a qualified judge of good or fair. Like, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I don't think there's anyone in this room who is all too disinterested in the first half of Romans chapter 8. right? Romans 8, in a nutshell, is this. What did I deserve? Death and hell. What did he give me? Life eternal. How did I get it? Through Jesus Christ. Why? Sheer grace. We say, yeah, that sounds right. And then we're like, but suffering. Suffering is bad. Why do you allow suffering to happen in my life? And we're all bent out of shape about that. God says, have the eyes to see what I am doing in your midst. Look at your Bibles at verse 33. It says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Do you know the only person who can charge you? God the Father. And he hasn't done it. No one else can. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. What an image. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And there again is another quotable quote often used outside of its context. We are more than conquerors! All in the midst of suffering, by the way. Isn't this so interesting when you think about it? There's like at least four verses here that we use all the time, but How many of us knew that this was the context? All in the midst of human suffering. And then he says this, "...for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither things present, nor in the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus." And so two more things I want you to see to help us have an eternal perspective in mind in the midst of our suffering. Number one, look behind to the cross. Look behind to the cross. The promise is not in this life, you'll never get sick, you'll never die, you'll never break a bone. No, the, the promise that, God's ma- that God makes is that in the scope of your life, you will see that Christ has paid a way for you to have new life in him. You now have the hope of glory. And because of that, when you suffer, do not be afraid. God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, even in the midst of your suffering. And so we have to look behind to see this. Even in those moments when, when we might raise our fists to heaven to say, why God, Why? may we be reminded of Jesus when he was on the cross and he said the same thing. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, he endured every iteration of suffering so that we might just scrape our knees so that we would never have to experience the true and eternal suffering that only Jesus had to face. So we look behind to the cross in the midst of our suffering to sustain us and to anchor us. And finally, look ahead to glory. To address the problem of evil, you have to look behind to the cross, but you also have to look ahead to glory. And that's where it ends, right? It ends this way, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor future, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate me from the love of Jesus, no matter what I experience. And so we have people, if you could picture this in your mind, people coming up to Paul. It might be a woman whose body is is riddled with cancer. And she says, will my cancer separate me from the love of Jesus? Paul says, no, cancer will not separate you from the love of Jesus. And there might be another man, he says, "I, I just lost my job. I lost my spouse. Will these things separate me from the love of Jesus? Paul says, no, they will not separate you from the love of Jesus. A man might come up who is filled with addictions in his life with his head down toward the ground, filled with shame, and and he says, will my addiction separate me from the love of Jesus? And Paul says, no. Nothing will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. This is Paul's instruction manual. He wants you to know both enjoy... And in suffering, nothing can take you out of the palm of God's hand. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, you are good. You are faithful. And Lord, these are very, very difficult teachings that we have just been looking at. Romans 8 is so hard to understand and to comprehend. But we ask, Lord, that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear that these words... Of scripture would dwell richly in our hearts and that it would cultivate within us a deep desire to worship you and to glorify your name that we would not be apathetic but that we would be passionate and filled with zeal for the sake of the gospel that we would make it our hope and in so doing We would not be utterly fixated on the things of this world and the few years of this life, but we would focus on the hope of glory. Lord, give us eyes to see this. Work within this church, specifically here at Gateway. We ask, Lord, that you would do an incredible, incredible work in our midst. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our hope. Amen.